from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a poet and a novelist that writes rich gothic narratives with autobiographical minutiae. She's joining me today to talk about her recent novel, The Briars, as well as her previous work of poetry, Every Poem a Potion, Every Song a Spell. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Stephanie Parrott. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for joining me on this 30th day of June 2023. I came across your book, The Briars, from one of the many bookstagrammers on Instagram and was really intrigued by the description. The story is atmospheric, gothic, and has a rich assortment of classic but unique character archetypes. What I really liked was the contained nature of the story. With the exception of Claire's apartment and some flashbacks, the story took place almost exclusively in the world of a dungeon acting as a microcosm of the universe. So I'm really impressed with your literary skill, and I'm excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. So the book is about a BDSM dungeon and the women that work within. Some are, I'm hoping I'm getting the plural right, dominatrixes. Yeah, I would think that's right. (laughs) And uh, some are submissives and some are both. And this dungeon has a legend associated with it where the previous owner, Lady Lilith's ghost, exists in an attic that's accessed from a room referred to as Lady Lilith's room. The current manager, Lady Ava, has the attic blocked off and does not allow anyone to go in it because there was some sort of a accident that no one really speaks of, but she makes sure to have someone regularly place artificial roses on the stairs that lead up to the attic, so Lady Lilith will, quote, continue to protect us. A mysterious new girl starts working in the dungeon, and that's when things start getting crazy. So... You yourself worked in a professional dungeon and alternated between being a dominatrix and a submissive. Do you feel like you have a default between those two personalities? And what kind of mental preparation did you have to do to shift between the two? So naturally, I'm much more on the submissive side. So that would be my default for sure. And so actually, when I started, I worked exclusively as a submissive for pretty much the first three years there. And at the dungeon that I worked at, which is very similar to the one in the book, I think I did mention in the book 
briefly that everyone has to start as a submissive. Mm-hmm. And that was how it was at the dungeon that I worked at. Unless you had like my character Ruby in the book, if you had training somewhere else and you already knew how to be a dom, you could come in as a dom. But for most people who didn't have training, no matter what, even if all you wanted to do was like come in and train to be a dom, you still had to work as a sub first. So I had to, but I actually liked it. Not everybody liked it, but that was what I wanted to do. That was what drew me to the dungeon. So that was all I did for a really long time. But because I worked there so long, like eventually you just kind of had to switch. Like you get more clients if you can do both sides. And a lot of the clients who see submissives only want to see the newer girls. So if you've been there three years only as a submissive, you're not going to have as many clients anymore. And you're just kind of getting tired of it and need a little change. And um, some of the clients are more respectful of boundaries once you become a switch. So switch would be the term for if you're doing both. Okay. Sub and dom. So you kind of have to. So you become what they call a switch, which is different than being a full dom. Because if you're a full dom, you don't do any more submissive sessions with very rare exceptions. If you're a switch, you can do both. So you can switch back and forth. So that's what you were asking about, like getting into the headspace. Mm-hmm. But I would say that because I had subbed for so long, because a lot of the clients were like longstanding clients who'd been coming for years, which again is a lot like the book, because of that, a lot of the clients, the other workers there, they knew me as a sub. So it was still kind of my default to act submissive. But I would say that like my submissiveness kind of evolved over the time that I was there in that I got stronger boundaries and maybe liked less extreme things or didn't want to subject myself to as many extreme, you know, masochistic type things. Mm -hmm. So I became like a little less wholly submissive. Like I didn't throw my whole self into it. Like I left help more myself back. And then that lent itself to the doming. So if I did have to do sessions where I knew I was going to have to be a dom the whole time, that was pretty hard for me because it's not natural for me. I wouldn't necessarily say that there was any kind of like preparation I did. You know, I didn't like go into a room by myself and try to transform into another person or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think I would just really try to read the client's energy and read what they wanted out of it, which is a little different than being, you know, a dom in a personal situation, because when you are doing it as a job, you know, even when you're the dom, it's still your job to really do what the client wants. So in a way it is almost submissive. It's like, we call it what the clients will do when they come into a dungeon, we'll call it topping from the bottom. So even if they're the submissive, because they're paying and they want a certain thing, they'll kind of top from the bottom. They'll kind of tell you what they want, but if they don't, you have to kind of try to figure it out you know because it's not like just a fun session the client is coming in here with something specific that they want you to do so you are trying to read that and i feel like the best way is to just really really pay attention to the client to the way they react to you often there will be certain phrases that they'll kind of latch on to so like i had one client he really liked it when i said that he was silly or when I laughed at him. And as soon as I could see that, then I could see, okay, he likes to be humiliated and that would help me choose what to do next. You know, he would want me to ask him to order him to like crawl around on the floor. Or if I were to spank him, I would probably have him go over my lap because it's kind of an embarrassing position to be with versus somebody who wasn't into humiliation. I might just have him lean against the cross and maybe spank him that way. And maybe that person is more into pain. So I'd spank him harder. So you just, you kind of have to like see how they react and go that way. 
So I guess really to answer your question about how I would get into the headspace, the best way is to really pay attention to the other person and really focus on them rather than my own reactions. Gotcha. Yeah. And I don't know, I forget at what part of the book it's being discussed, but in the book anyway, it makes it sound like being a dom, if you're naturally an aggressive dominant person to begin with, that obviously helps. But the way it's made out to be in the book is that's not enough. No, even so- if, even if you are that way, if you just like get thrown into some situation to be a dominatrix, it just comes off, I guess, as inauthentic or it's just... Well, like- for one thing, it could be dangerous. I mean, because if you're working in a dungeon and you're using all these toys, you know, some of them are very dangerous if they're not used properly. Mm-hmm. Like whips, you know, you could whip somebody and hit their eye or hit their neck. All kinds of dangerous things. So if you're tying somebody up, you know, you probably never want to tie somebody around their throat. If you ever did that, probably would not do it in a commercial dungeon for money. But like, if you ever did that, you would have to know exactly what you were doing and really check in with them and really make sure the rest of their body is supported. Even when you're just tying somebody's wrists, you have to constantly be checking in that they're not losing circulation. All kinds of things that you need to know that, you know, people who think, oh, I can just like, watch a movie or read a couple internet posts, then I can make myself be a dominatrix. It really doesn't work that way. And it's not just being mean or ordering someone around. Certainly there is a lot of that. There are a lot of clients who want that, but there's all different kinds of doms and all different kinds of subs. So, you know, some subs want you to be more of a caring dom, like a mommy dom, call it. I think you hear it more if it's a male dom, like a daddy dom, mm-hmm. but like someone who kind of takes care of you and tells you what to do, but in a nice way. And then some clients want to be very, very humiliated and some want a lot of pain. Some don't want any pain at all. They just want sensation. So there's so many different things. And the more you know about BDSM, the more of that you're going to be able to do. So definitely not just having an aggressive personality. And in fact, if you want to be a dom, like I never really wanted to be a dom, but if you want to be a dom, you can be a great dom, even if you don't have a naturally aggressive personality, because part of being a dom is pleasing your sub. <laughs> like <laughs> so actually, if you're more an empathetic person, you can read one another person once and give it to them. That's, and if you're a good actress, that's another thing that can help you be a dom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as counterintuitive as that sounds, it makes total sense. Because if you're just this naturally aggressive person where it's me, 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 and you're supposed to dominate somebody, but they want something in particular, you'd be like, no, no, I'm doing it my way, goddammit. I mean, there are people who do that not for money. Um, There are probably people who do it for money, too, but they may not be so successful. But people who do that in their personal life, and if you find the right sub, that could work, you know, but it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah. Well, your character in your book, Ruby, is naturally aggressive to the point where she doesn't want to start off as a sub. Well, actually, she doesn't want to be a sub at all. Right. And, you know, just wants to be a dominatrix. So her solution is to, I guess, for lack of a better term, apprentice with a dominatrix. Yes. Is that something that's done? Yeah, that's something that happens a lot for women who don't work in a dungeon. If you don't work in a dungeon, that's probably pretty much the only way you could really learn to be a dominatrix because not really something you can do on your own. Like you could watch videos, but you're not going to be able to tell if you're using the toys correctly, unless you have somebody there in front of you and you're watching them do it and they're watching you do it and giving you feedback and stuff like that. 
so yeah, in many communities, there aren't dungeons. So and even people are only doing this in their personal lives and not for money. It's the same thing. If you don't really know what you're doing, you find other doms and have them teach you. And it would happen in the dungeon too. It's just that at least at the dungeon that I worked at, which I modeled the one in the book off of, they would just make you be a sub first because that was just what the owner believed was the right way to go about it. So that was just kind of that dungeon's rule. Other dungeons may have been like, you know, you can come in as a dom, but you have to train. Hopefully, I'm sure there are some dungeons like this, but hopefully most of them don't just throw you out there as a dom on day one, you know, and have you using floggers and whips and things that you don't know how to use. So there would probably be kind of like a a period where maybe you're just shadowing or watching sessions, which also happened at my dungeon. And then, you know, you might not be making money at that time the learning process. Well, I am a fan of total environments. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is environments that are created to be felt as if you're no longer connected to the real world. Like, um, I don't know if you've ever been to a tiki bar would be kind of a a fluffy (laughs) example Mm -hmm. or, you know, just a really cool bar where there's either no windows or they're blacked out and you're just kind of in this dark realm or even like a club. I never really went clubbing, but back in my younger days, I did go to a few EDM clubs that, you know, just had this insane, I don't know if you call it a light show, lighting effects, whatever, just something that completely transforms your environment to almost otherworldly. So I've never been to a dungeon, but from what you described in the book, it seems like a dungeon is exactly that. So what kind of changes do you feel when it comes to space and time when you step out of the mundane world into the environment of a professional dungeon? So I think that's probably very different experience for the client than it is for the one who works there. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, you guys are used to it. <laughs> no, but but not just that, but like, because I think as the client, you're, I mean, there were some clients who did like six hour sessions, but you're probably doing like two or three hours max and then you're back out in the world and you're not doing it every day. So for the client, I think it really is like stepping into this kind of like darkly magical, almost erotic space where you kind of get to be somebody else. The problems or worries of your normal life kind of go away for a while. And unless the client really wants the lights very bright, or if the dominatrix is doing something that requires a lot of light, you can turn the lights up. But most of the time, fairly dark, you know, so you can't really see like, if there's like a lot of dust in the corners, you're not going to see it, you're not going to notice it. Somebody has a lot of blemishes on their face, you're probably not going to notice it. And of course, you know, the women work there are wearing these costumes. And so it just kind of seems like this magical, glamorous place. And certainly when you start working there, it still feels like that for you working there. But another kind of funny thing that happens if you do work there for a long time and you're working many days a week, and especially for me, because I worked day shifts and I had a lot of the women in the book working day shifts. And I think that was just because that was what I did. So I automatically wrote it that way. But it's like you're inside in the dark, like all day long. And it's just kind of weird. Like you almost forget that there's a whole normal world going on outside at our dungeon. There was a place that you could go outside in the back, like to smoke and stuff. And I put that in the book too. But if you weren't outside, like you were just kind of in the dark all day. And I remember for the first maybe three or four years that I worked there, I worked every single Sunday day shift. Like I almost never took off. I worked every Sunday. And then I remember when I stopped working on Sundays and I would just be out on Sunday and I would like go out and run errands or go to the coffee shop. And I would just be like shocked by how many people 
we're just walking around because most people have off on Sunday, you know, it's like, <laughs> this is what people do during the day. They go to brunch, they go hiking in the sun. <laughs> like it just felt like <laughs> you lose out on a lot of sun. So <laughs> it's just very dark. And then it, it does lend itself to that Gothic atmosphere, which I think could be another total environment. When you think of, you know, those old Gothic novels that take place in like a big kind of falling apart mansion or castle or something. A lot of times, you know, there's weather events going on, either it's very cold or there's a lot of storms or whatever it is. There's some reason that people can't go outside or they're just so isolated that they do go outside. It's just more of the same. It's just like moors or forests or whatever it is. So it's that same sense of isolation that I think comes from the Gothic and also darkness. And, you know, darkness is very like not being able to see things clearly, not being able to really see yourself clearly either. It just kind of lends to that mystery feel, that feeling of a fluid identity, fluid reality, which is all very mm. interesting. So you say day shifts. What kind of hours did the place keep? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the dungeon was open from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. most nights, midnight through the weekend. Okay. So I always worked day shifts because I used public transportation when I started. Later, I moved closer, so I didn't have to. I walked, but I obviously didn't want to walk home that late at night either. Yeah. And I also just liked the day shift better. So like most of the time, I worked from 10.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. And we got a lot of clients during that time because a lot of them, you know, have families. So they couldn't really go at night because their wives would wonder where they were going. But it was easy for them to like slip <laughs> out on their lunch break or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, day okay. shift. So when I wrote the book, I did kind of default to having a lot of things happen during day shift, although I had some nighttime seats, too. But then later I kind of thought, wow, I probably should have just had everybody working at night. It probably would have been even creepier, but <laughs> too late to change it at that point. Well, you mentioned a few elements like the area you stepped outside to smoke and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But because you were so familiar with the setting of the story, did you write the day-to-day -day operations of the dungeon true to life? Or did you take artistic license? And if so, what elements did you take artistic license in? It was almost entirely true to life, I would say. It just came more naturally to me that way. And I'd actually been trying to write a memoir based on the dungeon before this. So it was already like really in that world. I mean, I changed the names of some of the rooms and things like that, obviously. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I anything major like that, that I changed. I mean, there were a lot of details that I had to leave out and they were very interesting details. I ran across this problem when I was writing the memoir too. There's literally just like too much. There's just no way to put everything in the book, especially if it's not super relevant to the plot. So one example would be if the women were all sitting in the lobby together, like if you were kind of sitting in the lobby between sessions, waiting for sessions, submissives would be required to sit on the floor on pillows. So we had like pillows just scattered everywhere and they could maybe sit in a chair if there was nobody else there. But if you were sitting in a chair and a dom came in, you had to get up and offer her your chair. So there would just be like girls sitting on the floor all the time. So that was one thing. Another thing is, so I'm sorry, was this like in the back out of, no, so this would only be in the front, like where clients could potentially see. So a submissive was sitting on the floor to maintain that persona of yes. being submissive yes. when somebody walked in. Yes. And so in the okay. back, it wouldn't be like that, but it was kind of like if a brand new girl came in and 
took the last seat that was available in the dressing room. And then a dom came in and was standing up and talking, you know, that would kind of be a faux pas. And it would often be like faux pas that the new girl didn't even know she was making. (laughs) They're like totally new to this world. But uh, yeah, stuff like that. Um, Trying to think if there's anything else really. I did describe the intercoms a little bit. We had a camera in the parking lot. So that would be like a safety measure that we had anybody's license plate if they parked in the parking lot. Although many didn't park in the parking lot just for that reason. (laughs) We did not have a security guard. We did not have any cameras in the rooms. Yeah. So because, as you say, you didn't have a security guard, you didn't have any cameras in the rooms. I imagine in real life there was at least every once in a while, some unsavory characters that came around. For sure. <laughs> How were those people dealt with if you didn't have, you know, I, I guess a quote unquote bouncer or maybe, I don't know, maybe one of the doms was <laughs> was the surrogate bouncer? <laughs> I mean, I wish that had been the case because that would have been cool, but not really. So really the only measure we had was if somebody was just completely out of line and just did something completely out of line, we would tell the manager or as soon as we would call them like the desk mistress was whoever was on the desk that day. And then our version of lady Ava was like the real, you know, manager that we would tell her, we would say like, I don't think this guy should ever come back here. And if she agreed, then he would be 86. So they would like write down his name or any aliases he used and keep it in a book on the desk. Anytime he came in, be like, Nope, you're not allowed in here anymore. So that was in theory what we would do, but in practice, it really, didn't work very well because there would always be like somebody who would see him, you know, somebody who was willing to see that guy or the real life lady Eva would be like, let's give him another chance Mm. in ways she really put both profits. And I think like pleasing certain clients she put ahead of safety sometimes. So really a lot of them did get to come back, but you really had to define your own boundaries and what you were and weren't willing to put up with. And that really was a learning experience. So I'm pretty sure almost everyone who worked there had a couple bad experiences. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of the way it was. And with certain clients, which is kind of similar to what happens in the book, um, everybody knew that they were breaking the rules. They were like roping girls or hitting the wrong spot or hitting too hard or pulling underwear down or whatever it was. Everybody knew they were doing that, but they were still allowed to come in over and over. It's kind of the way Mm -hmm. it was. If they were regulars, at least new girls would get warned, usually, and who was working that day, would get warned about what they were going to do. So you could kind of like watch out and we had our tricks. That was another one that I left out of the book. But one of our tricks was that we wore like two pairs of underwear so that even if they pulled one down, there was another one on, like stuff like that. What about mace or a taser? No, we didn't have anything like that. No. Uh, I mean, and then theoretically, I guess, like, if you were tied up and that was in the room, then, like, the guy could grab it and use it on you. So that yeah, doesn't sound like a great idea. But no. <laughs> we had the intercoms, which I mentioned briefly in the book. So that as long as you weren't tied up, you know, some girls would not do bondage with somebody they didn't know. Like, they just wouldn't do that. Or, like, if you're with somebody new, you only do light bondage or you don't do bondage and a gag at the same time or whatever it is until you're more comfortable with the person. But as long as you weren't tied up, you could always walk over to the intercom and hit it and say, like, I need to end the session and this client needs to leave. And they would always leave at that point. But if they didn't, I guess the desk mistress would come up and yell at them and make them leave. But that never had to happen because at that point they would have been 
you know, scared that they would never be allowed back in or scared that we would call the cops or whatever, that they would just leave. So that was about most of the safety measures we had. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of piggybacking off that, as vile as a couple of the male customers are in the story, the women never seem to totally despise them. And it seemed like it was for more than the fact that they were just paying customers. What was at the root of that? I mean, it's interesting that you got that from it because I was like intending for some of the women to completely despise them. Like maybe not Claire, who's more the submissive one, but more like Ruby and some of the other doms. But it probably didn't come across as complete and total despising because I probably just put too much of my personality in there and it's hard for me to completely despise somebody <laughs> no matter how bad they are. And I mean, I guess I just didn't want things to be like that black and white, you know, every horrible person has maybe one hint of redemption or no matter how much of a creep somebody is, does that mean they deserve to die? I don't know. Some people might say yes, but yeah, no, that's one thing I noticed. I like writers that paint a portrait of the mixed realities of life. Like you say, black and white is kind of like real life doesn't operate that way. Right. Like they call it black and white thinking. And I think that's uh, been relegated to the realm of mental illness. <laughs> you know, yeah. they literally call it black and white thinking. It's kind of like somebody that is an addict. They're either all the way or nothing at all. And it's just, yeah. 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 yeah, so I really uh, I noticed that and appreciated that aspect of the story. Yeah, and I think to add to that would be also that, like, drawing from my real-life experience with clients, like, no matter how awful somebody was in session or how rude they were over and over, often they would just do, like, one little nice thing. Mm -hmm. Like, one little, I don't know, give a compliment or, like, give you a nice hug or, like, give you a little extra tip. Like, just one little nice thing that would make be like, well, he's not 100% an awful person. And that's just kind of the way life is. People are like that. Yeah. Well, much like the dungeon and the briars, stories of buildings being haunted are pretty common. Here in Houston, the Alley Theater is purported to have the ghost of one of the managers who was murdered by a security guard that was trying to steal money from the safe. Was there anything like that at the real life dungeon where you worked? There was. So, I mean, my idea for the book came from the fact that the real dungeon I worked at was supposedly haunted. So originally I had thought it would just be cool to write a short story of like a haunted dungeon, but obviously I explained it to a novel, but it was pretty similar to, to what I put in the book. In the dungeon that I worked at, we had bad water pressure. So if you left the sink running and flushed the toilet, the water would stop and it would seemed like you turned it off. But then as soon as the toilet filled, the water would start running again. So it always seemed like the water was just randomly starting to run for no reason. So people would always just say, oh, that is Lady Laura's ghost. So Lady Laura was the real life, like Lady Lilith. Lady Laura was the founder of the dungeon. So they would say, oh, that's Lady Laura's ghost. And there was like a Lady Laura's room and it had pictures of Lady Laura all over it, which I didn't put that in the book because in the book, Lady Lilith is kind of more hidden, has more hidden mysterious identity. But in my dungeon, it had pictures of Lady Laura all over. So it really felt like she was haunting that room, like her spirit was in that room. It just had to because and there were pictures of her, like, 
dressed in animal prints. Like that was one of the things that she seemed to like a lot. And then the room was covered in the animal prints. And some of the toys I think that hung in the room that we weren't supposed to use were her toys. And there really was an attic and, you know, there really were a lot of creepy noises. So it was just kind of stated a lot at the dungeon that her ghost was there. People would say, oh, I felt Lady Laura's presence when I had this late night session or when I was up there by myself cleaning or this or that. So yeah, that was where it came from. So speaking of ghosts, uh-huh. there is a particular type of ghost that's referenced in this story. So if it's possible without giving away too much information, can you tell us a little bit about your research on this particular type of ghost? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that anyone who really knows a lot about folklore or ghost stories is probably going to guess a lot of what is going on anyway. And I was kind of okay with that. I know some people really read books for the twists and stuff like that, but like personally for me, that's not the big thing. So if somebody guesses, as long as they still enjoy the book, I don't really care. (laughs) But, um, But yeah, so I knew I wanted to write a ghost story set in a dungeon, but I didn't really know much beyond that. So I started to do research into different like female ghost stories, folklore from different cultures, just trying to get ideas. And I noticed a lot of similarities across cultures, a lot of stories of young women usually who died tragically in one way or another that was often connected to their sexuality either they were like abandoned by their lover with the implication that maybe they were pregnant out of wedlock or they did get married but then their husband cheated on them and left them just heartbroken or divorce or just anything like that that was out of the norm of having this you know, idyllic marriage and children that was supposed to be what women did or having an affair would be another example. And I didn't find any stories specifically about sex workers, but certainly sex workers in older societies, like pre-1800 societies, some of these women who would have become ghosts. So the idea is that these women were either tragic or they were sinful or this or that. So when they died, they didn't get to rest. They came back as, you know, kind of tortured ghosts, And I'm going to say right here, this is where there may be spoilers if you're reading the book right now. So if you really don't want to know, just like skip ahead two minutes. (laughs) So a lot of these cultures, these female ghosts would have very like long, wild, unbound hair. And part of the idea was that was that like a proper married woman would always wear her hair up in many, many cultures across the world. Like a young girl could wear her hair down or wear her hair in braids. But once you got married and you were a woman, your proper place, you were not supposed to have this wild, crazy long hair. And then also white. A lot of these ghosts wore white. In some cultures, like in, in Asian cultures, everyone was like buried in white. So the ghosts are often, you know, in their burial clothes. And, you know, in like Victorian England, those ghosts, the white kind of represents like virginity and innocence. Again, that tragedy of a woman dying before she was able to fulfill her rightful, in quotation marks, role of being a wife and mother, or even the wedding dress, it brings up that implication. So the white is kind of something we see in so many of these ghosts. They even call it like the woman in white legends. And I found these legends from Eastern Europe, from England, Russia, Asia, South America, Mexico, 
the Arctic. I found <laughs> this, like Arctic mermaid, like all, all kinds of crazy everywhere have these kind of legends. So I just kind of took them all and I actually tried to mention so many different, like I have so many little Easter eggs in the book that I don't even remember them all. <laughs> so I'll like look at a page, I'll be like, oh yeah. That. So there's a this one mirror in the book that I describe as resembling a droopy eye. So that was a reference to a specific ghost story where there's a ghost who is poisoned and her skin kind of sags and melts. So she has like a droopy eye. So that was a reference to that. And there's one scene where all the women are like an attic and they're seeing this ghost, but they all call her by different names that reference the cultures that they are from. So yeah, I tried to put all these little hints of the different legends and folklore that have these threads of similarity that really have to do with wanting women to fit one role, wife and mother, and kind of punishing any woman who steps outside of that role, whether she does it by choice, by being sexual, or whether it happens through some kind of tragedy. Okay. Well, kind of circling back to similarities to the real life setting mm -hmm. in the story, Claire's boyfriend does not like the fact that she works at the dungeon. And I was curious to know, was that a common dynamic at the dungeon you worked at? Was there some uh, boyfriend drama every once in a while or girlfriend <laughs> yeah. drama? You know? Yeah. And it was more boy, like there were definitely some bisexual or lesbian women when I was there, but I think the time I was there it was not quite as like popular to be open about it as it is nowadays. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't even that much longer ago. It was just that really, it seems like in the past couple of years, it's become more and more. There certainly were some, but most of the women, if they had a partner, it was, it was a guy. But yeah, it was a pretty common thread. And like my situation, I got a boyfriend after I worked at the dungeon. At first, he was like excited that I worked there. Like thought it was really cool. That was kind of how we met. But then I think, after a couple of years, he really thought I was just going to quit. Like he thought it was a phase and I've talked to other women and they seem to have like the same kind of experience that like, you know, you start dating somebody and they're like, Oh wow, this is really cool. But then like, okay, well, when are you going to get a normal job? And it definitely would bother most guys to know, you know, what we were doing there. Like I remember this one dominatrix. And so we would do like cock and ball torture, which, you know, where you're doing things to guys cock and ball, like that don't feel good. And it's hard to do that with gloves on. Like you're doing really specific things like you're pinching or you're putting clothespins or you're like tying the cock up. It's a pain to do it with gloves on, but gloves were an option. And like, I do remember one woman and once she got serious with her boyfriend, she was like, I never, ever thought I would be wearing gloves to Dom. I never thought anybody would make me do that. But I love my boyfriend enough. And he <laughs> is not comfortable with me touching other guys' cocks without gloves on. So from now on, I got to wear gloves. Mm. So that was like, <laughs> that kind of thing did happen a lot. Um, yeah, pretty common. I think they're still together and they're happy. So that's more of like a lighthearted example, but definitely did cause a lot of emotional distress and lead to relationships breaking up and that type of thing. Mm. Did I hear you right? You met a boyfriend through? Yes. Well, I mean, he didn't go to the dungeon or anything. Oh, okay. He heard that I worked there and he thought that was cool. And that was part of why he wanted to meet me. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with Danny Stygian. No, I had him on the show. He, owns, runs, I guess you would say, Cynical Magazine and Subspace Magazine. Ooh, yeah. Look up and his wife is a dominatrix, and that's how he met her. And uh, so I'm assuming she's not doing that anymore, but she models for a lot of his stuff on Cynical. 
latex yeah. and stuff like that. Cause subspace I think is for submissives, but it's, it's funny. He was telling me he was using subspace as a hashtag, uh-huh. which is also kind of a, uh, you know, like space nerd type of thing. Yeah. And he said he got, he got a message <laughs> from somebody's like, you got to stop using that damn hashtag. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I was just curious to know how the relationship dynamics went and if you had met somebody through that or not, because I found that pretty interesting when he told me that. Yeah. But did you have the same kind of close knit relationship with the women you worked with, like the characters in the book? Definitely. That was definitely part of the inspiration for why I wanted to write the book. I am an introvert and have a hard time making friends. So at the time I started working at the dungeon, I didn't really have a lot of close friends. And an environment like the dungeon really lends itself to having close relationships because we all know this kind of big secret about each other once we start working there. And there's physical intimacy, just that we're so close to each other all day long. We're changing in front of each other. We're doing double sessions. We're we're really close to each other. <laughs> so there's that physical intimacy. And then there's the emotional intimacy of sharing the secret and sharing these weird experiences that, you know, the clients, they go through everybody. So like certain clients, every single woman almost in the dungeon will have seen them. So like we have these strange experiences we can talk about with each other that, you know, nobody else can really talk about. And then there's also the time element because we worked like six hour shifts, usually five to six hour shifts and nobody pretty much maybe the most popular girl. Like I have the Mara character at some points being like that very popular new girl. But aside from that, nobody was working that entire time. There was a lot of sitting around and waiting for Mm. clients. So, you know, a lot of time to have that kind of like slumber party dynamic and chatting and all that stuff. So I did get really close with a lot of women, which is not to say that there was not also, you know, competition and jealousy and fighting and all those things that happen anytime people are together because people are, not ideal all the time. And I still have some very close friends from the dungeon. So it really means a lot to me. Some of those friendships did kind of dissolve and, you know, feelings got hurt and things like that, especially with the pandemic happening. And that's just kind of life and it's sad, but that's also part of why I wrote the books. I wanted to like remember and honor this kind of special space that existed for at least a certain time you know. Mm. So you were working there up until the pandemic? Randomly. I had quit a couple months before the pandemic started. Oh, okay. So it was kind of a coincidence, but yeah. But then the dungeon actually closed permanently during the pandemic. So Mm. there is another one that was started by one of the women who worked there. So there's still kind of a similar one, but it's not the same and it's not the same location. Mm. Okay. Well, so a friend of mine is a therapist. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. But one day we had got to talking on the subject of BDSM, and I asked him what kind of guidance he gave people that asked about incorporating BDSM into their like sex life or in their relationship period. And he said he would advise them to not go to the point where there was tissue disruption. And I asked him what that meant. And he said, basically, the most minor form of that would be breaking capillaries, which is what causes a bruise. 
And, you know, therapy is pretty subjective. There's all sorts of schools of thought and you can go to five different therapists and get five different opinions. So what are your thoughts on tissue disruption? What was the norm as far as like the... I mean, that's kind of a funny thing to say also because that would really depend on the person. Uh Like some people bruise so easily. Some people have tissue disruption from accidentally walking into a door or banging their their hip like every other day you know like yeah and some people can take like a super hard spanking and not bruise but Mm. i would say in general that if you're gonna work at a dungeon or you're gonna be in a bdsm relationship that involves any kind of pain at all you're gonna get bruised so Mm. um (laughs) if you're saying you shouldn't take to that point it's kind of saying don't do bdsm so yeah i think it's okay i think it's really healthy for a lot of people BDSM desires do often come from trauma, certainly not always, but they do sometimes come from trauma, but they can be a really healthy way to work through that trauma. And if that includes physical disruption of the physical body, as long as both partners are consenting, mm-hmm. you know, I think it can be healthy. You can certainly do BDSM that doesn't involve anything physical. You could have like a completely mental session you know Mm. you're just trying to get into somebody's head and but that could almost be more damaging really yeah you don't know (laughs) know, like humiliation public humiliation certainly well could even happen at the dungeon what happens sometimes like you know some people like to be laughed at by a whole group of people or humiliated in front of a whole group of people so in that kind of case if there was a sub like that they would just call up every single girl who was not in session at the time every single girl was there and like have them all come in the room and laugh at the client so something like that, you don't have to touch the person, but you're definitely having an impact on them. <laughs> so, yeah. But in general, I would say most people who do BDSM do want that physical aspect at least a bit. So I think you just kind of have to know what you're doing and be careful and keep checking in. Because one thing to know is that people's needs and desires change over time. That was one mm. thing that I had a lot of trouble with both mostly in my personal relationship, but even with clients, like long-term clients, because I was really masochistic when I started working at the dungeon. Like I could take a very heavy spanking. It didn't face me at all. I didn't mind getting bruised. It didn't really hurt me that much. It made me feel good. But over time, like I kind of got just too much of it at once. Like I just kind of needed a break. And then I was no longer kind of getting the same endorphin rush. So it really just hurt more. I just didn't Mm. want that same level of pain. But if clients didn't check in and why would they because you know they're just coming and paying for a service they don't know me so they're not going to check in and be like is this still okay like <laughs> they're going to assume it's still okay and so like mm-hmm. i kind of would have to like, grip my teeth and do it and that was probably not good for me eventually i did have to tell some and especially with my boyfriend at the time like he didn't understand really you know when i started changed he was disappointed so that was not really a healthy relationship dynamic then so yeah I think healthy BDSM requires a lot of checking in, a lot of communication and knowledge about what you're doing. Like if you're going to be the dominant partner, hopefully apprenticing under somebody in real life, even if it's not a formal apprenticeship, but just learning from somebody in real life. But if you can't do that, or even if you're the sub, just Googling and just like reading reputable sources and they will tell you, you know, what part of the body is safe to hit, what isn't. Like the tailbone is not safe to hit. The meaning part of the butt is more safe to hit. Stuff like mm. that. Don't punch somebody in the stomach because there's organs there. Like if you're going to slap somebody's face, if you're into that, like don't hit their ear because you can damage their hearing. So, you know, just learning that kind of stuff before you engage in this activity 
if you're the sub, it's going to protect you. If you're the dom, it shows respect for your partner. So all that will make it safer because there are people who want things that are going to permanently change your body. Like people are into like branding and stuff like that. So then that does become a question. Is that psychologically healthy or not? And I'm sure you're going to get different answers, but Mm. it's really not that different from like people will, you know, get a tattoo of a lover's name on their body and then regret it later. So it's kind of similar. It happens in all kinds of relationships. Mm. I don't think any kind of relationship can ever be totally healthy because humans are not really totally emotionally healthy. We're not, then we go back to that black and white thing. You know, (laughs) nobody's going to be, it's impossible to be in a 100% healthy relationship 100% of the time because we're not robots. We're people. (laughs) Yeah. That's why, that's why AI will never accomplish what humans can as far as creativity because they're not flawed like we are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the story, the character of Claire has a background in ballet dancing. And I saw some pictures of you and some graceful poses on your Instagram page. So I'm assuming you have a background in ballet as well. Not not uh, like Claire does. Oh, okay. I did want to be a dancer. I took ballet when I was really little, but I was not good at it. I had Claire do that too. Well, I gave her a different reason. I think I said that like they couldn't afford ballet lessons, so she didn't do it as a kid. So I was just not very good at it. And then when I did go back to dance, I tried to do some ballet, but I did more like modern and flamenco dance and stuff like that. Just because like, I just wasn't that good at ballet and there weren't that many classes that were available to me and I never was able to get on points or any of that. So I never like went to school for ballet like I had Claire do in the book, but I definitely did take dance classes and I wished I was better at it (laughs) than I was. So yeah, she would be like a much more exaggerated version of my experience in that regard. Well, are there any other identical or somewhat similar parallels between you and Claire? Well, the boyfriend situation. I mean, her boyfriend (laughs) in the book is much cooler than my real boyfriend was. And her boyfriend is not really like a dom. Like he's not into the BDSM scene and mine was. Um, But yeah, the boyfriend situation was somewhat of a parallel. The difference, I think, when I was in that situation, I could be needy sometimes. But Claire is like almost codependent. Like you get the sense that she does not really like to be alone. She doesn't want to live alone. You know, like you get the sense that she doesn't want to live alone. And I'm actually more like Ruby in that regard. So Ruby is like a loner, you know. Aside from that one relationship where I did have some times where I really, really wanted to be with my boyfriend, but there's a big part of me, like I'm an introvert. I need my alone time. I need my space. I don't honestly put that ahead of a relationship a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I'm not like Claire. I'm more like Ruby and Claire's like masochism and the types of sessions she enjoys. That's kind of what I was like when I first started at the dungeon. By the time I'd been there a really long time, I wasn't anymore. So I think overall, anybody meeting me would probably think that I was more similar to Claire than to Ruby, but I certainly put a lot of myself into Ruby too. And also both characters have bits of lots of women I knew from Mm. the dungeon or just from life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned that you initially had started writing a memoir about working at the dungeon. Were you inspired to write the novel from that as a beginning or was there like a writing influence you had that did something similar by writing a book about a job they had? No, there was no influence for that aspect. I can't think of a single book that I've read like that that was <laughs> about the job like that. No, so mm-hmm. that was just, that was me. Yeah, I was I- thinking of uh, <laughs> Poppy 
what is it? Poppy Z bright uh-huh. wrote, yeah, wrote about being a sous chef. <laughs> ah, yeah. I haven't read that book. I've read parts of some of her books and I'm, is she a he now? I think she, they transitioned. Yeah. I, different yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. So I just won't use pronouns, but I have read some of their writing and would like to read more in the future. Um, yeah. No, personally, not that I don't like memoirs, but I kind of prefer like fictional books where you know that the author used their own experience but I just feel like there's a freedom to fiction that there isn't to memoir. I guess you could say the closest thing, and I don't think this is a good book and I didn't really enjoy it, is like The Devil Wears Prada. She's <laughs> <laughs> writing about her experience working for Vogue. And actually, when I was thinking about books I could write about the dungeon, like taking a very different tone with it, I think you could write a fun kind of like chiclet gossipy book called like the devil wears latex nice right <laughs> do it get yeah. on that right now <laughs> i'm a little tired of writing about the dungeon right now yeah well a lot of people that want to write a book have a lot of false starts and sometimes never complete the work from what i understand it's pretty difficult to not only write the book but get it edited and in final manuscript form ready for publication so can you tell me about the evolution of the briars from beginning to publication the briars the only full-length adult novel that i've written but it was a lot quicker than anything else i had written and anything i would imagine i would write in the future and the reason for that is that it was during the pandemic so i was editing books that was my main job and then Right after I finished it, I became a bar instructor, like a ballet bar instructor. So that was another dance <laughs> type thing. But so I was doing that when I edited it. But for the actual writing process, like I did not have an out of the house job. My only job was that I was editing books and it was not fun. So, but what I would do is I would just get up in the morning and I would work on the briars until like basically all day until I was sick of it. And then I would do my paid work of editing other people's books at night. So I was just working all the time and it was not fun. But because of that, I was able to finish the first draft in about six months. Mm. And it also helps that I had consciously decided to write about a setting I knew and the characters inspired by people I knew. So all of that meant that I didn't really have to keep track of, you know, if you're writing like a crazy setting, like if you're trying to create for one of my next ideas, I'm thinking I might have a book set in like a big mansion, but it would be totally made up. Then I would probably have to make a map of the mansion in my head mm. and like list where everything is. But because I was using a real, I knew and I didn't have to double check with consistency or stuff like that. So that helped me to do it faster. But it really was just the pandemic. Like we couldn't go out, we couldn't travel. So I lived in Los Angeles for a long time, but I came back to Baltimore that year. So the majority of the book was written between October and March. So it was cold that year. It was snowing. Couldn't go outside. Couldn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I just had made a goal for myself to write the book as fast as I could. And I edited it as I wrote. That's just my process. I know some people say you should not do that, but that's what I do. Like I always start every single day when I sit down, I go back to the beginning and read from the beginning and edit as I go. And then once like a certain section, so say I had read starting at chapter one. If like for three days in a row, I read chapter one and didn't make any changes. And I would be like, okay, from now I'm going to start from chapter two. And so then I would start from chapter two and 
if it got to three times in a row, I didn't make any changes on chapter two, then I'd start from chapter three. But so, so by the time I got to the end, the beginning had been edited many, many times. Now that did cause me to have to do some extra work because then I realized I had to like totally rewrite some sections. So I was like, Oh, I edited this so well on a sentence level. And now I have to delete it. You know, so that was not good, but like, because I write that way, it does help me to come up with a cleaner draft by the time I finish. But yeah, it was kind of just like, it was just a weird situation. I honestly hope it will never happen again because I hope we never <laughs> go through a worldwide pandemic again. The only way I can imagine that something would happen like that again is if I did it to myself intentionally. Like if I had the resources to go on a one month writing retreat and wasn't working or doing anything else during that time, maybe I could write like that again. Mm. But unfortunately, I think my next book is probably going to take a lot longer because mm. <laughs> there's going to be a lot more, you know, life stuff getting in the way. But I also am the kind of person who does a lot of my writing in my head. Like I work out a lot and I like, I have a dog. I walk my dog a lot. I go jogging and all that time is time that I'm like kind of working out story problems in my head and stuff like that. I do not outline. I'll write notes once they come to me, but they're kind of disorganized. So. <laughs> I've learned that like, if I try to outline, it's not going to work because I'll be like, oh, I should have XX and X happen in this next chapter. But I'm such a detail-oriented writer and things take longer to describe than I think they will. So like, if I try to have XXX happen in the chapter, maybe only the first one will happen. And I'll be like, oh my God, this is already 20 pages. (laughs) (laughs) So it does not work for me to try to plan out the whole book. So is that still your uh, bread and butter right now, editing? Yeah, it's a lot of it. Yeah. Okay. All righty. Well, you are also a poet. You have a book of poetry called Every Poem a Potion, Every Song a Spell. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah. Well, that was another like pandemic oddity. Mm, okay. <laughs> I don't know what have happened <laughs> if it wasn't for the pandemic, but it's a book of poetry inspired by fairy tales. So it kind of started as an outlet during the pandemic. Because I was working on all these projects, like the memoir and the novel and other things. I wanted to write things that I could finish quickly. So that's why I started writing poems. Because, you know, you can write at least a draft of a poem in like 30 minutes, maybe. Sometimes it depends on poems. Sometimes it takes a lot longer, but sometimes you can't. So I just started writing a couple that were inspired by fairy tales. And then I kind of came up with a whole list of fairy tales that would be cool to do and divided them to different sections based on themes and things like that. So eventually it kind of had a whole book's worth. And again, that probably would not have happened if it wasn't for the extra time that existed during the pandemic. I did actually manage to finish the second book of poetry, which I have not found a publisher for, but that one also kind of started in the pandemic and just, I did finish that one after the pandemic, but because I had so much of it already done, but yeah, like I don't consider myself, like the kind of level of poet who would be, I don't know, in fancy magazines or winning awards or things like that. But I got some good reviews. Like the book does seem to resonate with a lot of people. So, you know, hopefully (laughs) it's landing on some levels and I enjoy writing it. So I've had some people say that like, if you like the novel, you'll probably like the poetry and vice versa. Because I have the same sort of like, descriptive folklore inspired writing style and focus on women's experiences. Those aspects are the same throughout my writing. And then I think it might be kind of fun to read the poetry if you've read the Briars, because even though the poetry does not explicitly mention BDSM at all, 
if you know that about me, you can kind of read between the lines a lot and see a lot of those themes of masochism and stuff. So that might be interesting to people. Hmm. Okay. Well, I apologize for not remembering this. You have a short story in the anthology Livestock Horror Stories from the Unheard. And listeners at home, Unheard is UN-HERD, which is a very cool way of saying not part of the herd. I just cannot remember. Has this been published yet? Yeah, it's been out for a while. Yeah, it's been out for a while. Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us about that short story? Um, well, that was actually one of two times I've been solicited to write a story for an anthology, which was really quite an honor, but it was kind of a response to the Roe versus Wade decision. The whole anthology was, it was about, you know, bodily autonomy. So I had already kind of had an idea to write a story about a witch character, which in quotation marks, because she, she might not really be a witch, but like in kind of one of those New England towns, you know, in the 1600s inspired by Salem, but just this idea that certain women were outcasts for one reason or another, and then were accused of being witches. So I just kind of took that and I told the story from shifting perspectives of a lot of different characters in the town and how they would have viewed this outsider woman who is also unapologetically independent. She's not married. She doesn't want to be married. She lives by herself away from the town. These are all things that would have been threatening, you know, to their society. And she's sexual outside of marriage. So it was really kind of inspired by the same research I'd been doing for the Briars because these are all things that were threatening in the patriarchal society and that were considered evil. So, you know, this woman, she's not a ghost. She, she was a witch. So it's a little different, but it's the same kind of themes. So I think if you like the Briars, you would probably like the story also. Have you seen that movie Consecration? I have not. It's about in Scotland, the uh, Catholic church had what are called Magdalene laundries. I, I know uh, that I love, there's an old Joni Mitchell song mm-hmm. called the Magdalene laundries. My mom used to play Joni Mitchell all the time when I was a kid. I love that song. Yeah. But I learned about them like, a long time ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's a possession horror story <laughs> that takes place in a Magdalene laundry. It's really well, good. It would be a great, great setting for any kind of horror story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. I didn't know what it was until I watched it. I did a review on it. So yeah, definitely check that out. It's a very good possession horror play on historical fact. So you write poetry, prose. Do these two literary forms do different things for you in the way of personal benefit? And if so, can you tell us a little about it? Well, yeah, I think like I was kind of saying in answer to the question about poetry book. So I don't really put the same kind of pressure on myself to be a good poet, <laughs> good no, in okay. works again, <laughs> as I would, you know, with my prose. Like, I don't think I'm going to win any awards for my poetry. Like, I don't think I'm going to be in the New Yorker. Like, uh. obviously, I try to make it as good as I can, but it's more of a release for me. So it does help if I'm frustrated with my prose or I don't want to do it. I need a break, but I still want to get my emotions out. Then poetry is a good release for me. I don't have to worry about telling a story necessarily to the same extent or having things make sense to the same extent. Since poetry can be a bit more abstract that way um, and allows you to play with like the 
arrangement of the words on a page, which is a different way to use your creative brain and kind of a nice change. So yeah, I would say the poetry is probably more of like a hobby or a release mm. versus the prose where I really feel like I'm trying to communicate to an audience and I'm, it's important that the message gets across. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, do you do any other type of writing like journalism or screenwriting? And um, what role do you intend writing to have in your life? I have done a little bit of screenwriting in the past, but it was so long ago that I wouldn't really say I do that. <laughs> I have written some nonfiction articles that were sort of like crossing the line between journalism and personal essay. And I would be open to doing more of that in the future, maybe. I had more time because it requires a lot of research, but I think it would be interesting to write, you know, more nonfiction about the experience of BDSM workers. If I were able to interview more of them or just things of that nature. But in general, I would say like I've drawn more to the creative and to the fiction, or if it's nonfiction, like very creative nonfiction as to what role it plays in my life. That's a hard one. Like it depends kind of it's, on where I am in my life. Like my last years in the dungeon, I was pretty unhappy. And that was when the desire to write really came back to me. Like these stories were just kind of filling my brain and just all these emotions I wanted to get out and things I wanted to express and didn't know how. So definitely an emotional urge to write in that sense. But I'm also writing is very hard for me. Writing is like hard work. I'm not somebody who just sits down and writes every day because it's fun. And then I feel better afterward. So I don't do it every day right now. Unfortunately, <laughs> I have to like really have a goal in mind to be doing it. And, you know, coming up across like ugh, just our economy and how little you get paid to write. And the fact that I support myself, like I don't have a spouse. I probably don't want to have a spouse and you need to have money to have a good life. And it's very hard to make a living as just a writer, unless you're writing all the time and producing a ton of writing and probably also doing other things like editing or teaching or things like that. It's hard to make a career as a writer and solely as a writer. So it's not able to be as big a part of my life as I would hope that it might be. So I'm kind of in flux there. I don't really know <laughs> if the answer your question. And I think like if, you know, my first really drive to write came out of like very upsetting, you know, personal situations, like break up a relationship and feeling alone and things like that. So if something like that happened again, I might have writing take over again. But, you know, I kind of hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> I don't want to go through like something that majorly awful again. But if it does, that might make writing take over my life for a little while again. <laughs> <laughs> so which novel dramatically altered your view of what could be accomplished with the written word? Well, I mean, there's more than one that did that, but... I wouldn't say it's one novel, but it's just a writer in general. And I'm not sure if you will have heard of her because she's a young adult novelist. But her name is Francesca Leah Block. And she writes these magical realist stories. They're just full of surprising imagery and little touches of magic. And they don't really follow the rules of ordinary writing. Like some of them are very short, like they're just like little novellas and they don't follow traditional story structure. Some of them are told more almost like fables. They have long, long, long descriptions, but she accomplishes 
so much to these descriptions. Like most of them are set in Los Angeles and the city is almost a character. Well, not almost, it is a character. And the way she writes just makes you look at the world in a totally different way. So I think that was really kind of mind blowing for me because it just makes you see both the magic and the ugliness because she doesn't shy away from showing ugliness either. But I actually moved to Los Angeles because of her book. So that kind of showed me like how powerful writing can be to make you see a place in a totally different way and to the point that you change your whole life because of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would probably be my number one answer would be Francesca Leah Block. Well, is there anything outside of reading that you do that you feel makes you a better writer? Yeah, I would say physical exercise for sure. As I mentioned, I have a lot of ideas when I'm like walking or running, but even doing like the dance type stuff. And I don't really do dance right now, but like I teach and take bar, which is like with the ballet bar. But it's hard for me to separate like the way my body feels from my creativity. So I think it's important to be physically active. Like if you're stagnant in your body, you're going to be stagnant in your mind too. At least that's my experience. So that's a big one for me. Another one would be listening to music, especially while I'm exercising and listening to music. It just kind of like opens up your emotions in a different way so that you can, I think, maybe feel a wider range of experiences, even if you're not having those emotions right now. Like if you listen to a lot of songs about breakups and then you're going to write a breakup scene, you know, it can really help even if you're not personally going through a breakup. (laughs) Um, So music for sure. Okay. Well, kind of contrary to that, is there anything that you avoid because you believe it stifles your creativity? I mean, this is not a really a good answer. (laughs) I probably shouldn't even admit this, but I don't read a lot of craft books. Crap. Like books about how to write. Oh, oh, gotcha. Yeah. Like, you know, writing tips or, or writing rules or things like that. And it's not that I don't think they're helpful. I think they could be helpful, but they just they make me not want to write. (laughs) I guess as soon as it starts becoming like a prescribed way of having to do something, then I kind of lose interest in it. I don't really want to do it. So yeah, I tend to avoid craft books. I just kind of go on my own method. I don't know, maybe it would improve my writing if I read more of them. I do try to learn a lot from when I edit my own stuff. I'll notice mistakes that I make, you know, and try to not make them like I tend to write too long like everything's too long (laughs) (laughs) so like I know you know if I'm writing another book and I'm planning it out I'm like okay you're not gonna be able to fit everything you want to fit in here like I had so many ideas for scary scenes in the briars that didn't make it in because I had already written too much so maybe I should have like gotten scarier earlier so I could fit more than even scary so you know I keep that in mind if I write another book and you know from editing other people's books, I noticed too, or just when I'm reading like some stylistic things that will make your sentences stronger. Like for instance, I try to avoid like long blocks of just description. If you can describe something while the characters are like moving through it or acting, it will tend to be kind of a better reading experience. So just things like that. Now that I know I try to apply them when I'm writing rather than have to go back and fix it later. So stuff like that, but I don't like reading craft books. It, it just dampens my enthusiasm for writing. <laughs> so that's something I kind of avoid. <laughs> gotcha. What's your uh, writing atmosphere? Are you in it right now or? No, I mean, right now I'm honestly not writing, unfortunately, but I don't really have 
one. Like I'm not one of those people who tries to set up everything perfectly with like the candle and the music and the, mm-hmm. cause if I do that, then I think I'll feel too much pressure and I won't want to write. When I was writing the Briars, I was actually very uncomfortable most of the time. And I just accepted that because I was like living in my parents' house and it was not a comfortable environment. And I was like, that's fine. You're not even going to try to clean up all this mess that's in here. You're just going to sit at this messy desk, uncomfortable desk in this old chair and you're going to write the book. And that's what's happening. So I was able to like force myself to do that. So honestly, I think if I were to try to write a book quickly again, like I think I would probably try to find something, any place where I can minimize distractions. So again, like it's like if a writing retreat or like you're going to go to this coffee shop or this library and you're not going to go home until you've written for three hours, you know, something like that. Cause if I am in my home, I will get distracted and I will want to clean my home or eat my food or take care of my dog or whatever other thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I try not to be too superstitious about like having to have the candle or have the knickknacks or this or that. Cause you don't always have that. So. Hmm. Okay. Well, tell me about this interview you did with hustler magazine. So that was another stroke of luck was that like one of the women I worked with at the dungeon writes for hustler. Oh, okay. So, um, I've never been able to, to get that, but yeah, she's one of my friends from the dungeon and she's written a couple articles for hustler. Like she wrote one about sex education and stuff like that. So I saw that she had done that. And like quite a while ago before the briars had come out, I reached out to her and said, maybe we could write an article about it. And I had pitched like just an article or interview with me, but she, you know, wanted to expand it. So she was like, why don't we do an interview with a couple different women who worked at the dungeon about what it's like to work in a dungeon. And then we can also mention your book. So basically that's what we did. And it was really fun. (laughs) It was a really cool experience. Good publicity right there. (laughs) Well, what is the life of Stephanie Parent like outside of writing? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, a lot of working, <laughs> like a lot of editing and teaching and stuff like that. I like to read. So I try to read as much as I can. And these days I really try to read books by, you know, indie authors that I interact with on Twitter. Cause there's just so many of them. And I love being able to read something that I feel like I kind of know the author. So I do that. I have a dog that I take care of and she's getting old. So she requires a lot of attention. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just kind of like, you know, thinking about my next book and if I even want to start it right now and yeah, kind of just in limbo, just working a lot, trying to like save money and establish, you know, a comfortable living environment for myself, which kind of takes all your energy in this society. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, Stephanie, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Same to you. Absolutely. You asked such great questions. Well, thank you. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Just the Briars. Just the Briars? <laughs> yeah, please, please pick up a copy of the Briars if you would like. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, and I think you just Google the Briars, Stephanie Parent, and it will come up, as well as like my social media and all that will come up, but... Yeah, I mean, I really feed off reactions, even if they're not good reactions, like even a bad review. I just like to know that people are actually reading and reacting to what I write. That's why I do it. So yeah, if it sounds like something you would like to read, I would be honored if you would pick it up. You can always DM me on social media. I love to hear from readers. Yeah, I think that's about it for right now. All right. Outstanding. 
Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Stephanie, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the free email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer that has taken a dark time in the early 20th century and turned it into a terrifying tale. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Thank you.